don't compare yourself to other mothers. Don't look at social media about how everybody looks after two weeks, getting back into their size eight jeans and made up and, you know, having such a wonderful time because a lot of it's baloney. <laughs> you know, and considering if you have got postnatal depression, you know, you're doing an incredible job with the circumstances that you're going through. A lot of girls would say when they come out the other side, actually, I wouldn't be without that experience. It's taught me so much. It's made me much stronger. Definitely, I would say that without a doubt. And I've heard a lot of girls say that. If you can get through PND, you can get through anything. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Blue Mondays, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. Today's guest is Liz Wise. Liz is a specialist postnatal depression counsellor, supporting mothers with postnatal depression for over 25 years. She sits on the committee for the Association for Postnatal Illness and has her own charity, the Cedar House Support Group, which offers help to mothers through support groups in London and Surrey. Having had PND after both her daughters, she has a wealth of personal and professional experience in helping mothers understand what they're going through and helping them to recover. Liz offers confidential one-to-one counselling, either face-to-face, by phone, online or email, and runs PND support groups in London and Surrey. So those of you who have already listened to part one of my chat with Liz will know her own battles with postnatal depression. But for, for this part, I'm really excited to talk to Liz about her work with the Cedar House charity and how she has turned her really negative experiences of PND into something hugely positive for the lives of women and their families. It's no exaggeration to say that attending Liz's support group certainly saved my life and I know two other really close friends of mine who saw Liz's group as a complete lifesaver. So welcome back to Blue Mum Days Liz, I'm so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you, Vicky, and thank you for inviting me back. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Oh, thank you so much. Having been through PND myself, I know it's so hard and so draining of your energy. How did you then turn that around with two young daughters into helping other women in the same situation? Well, I think initially, after I'd made a full recovery after my second daughter, Holly, was born back in early 1991, I think, I was approached by somebody in my local NCT group. um, And she knew that I'd been through postnatal depression twice. And she asked me if I'd be interested in setting up a PND support group on a voluntary basis in my own home. Um, I think it was the first Monday of each month. And I said, yeah, absolutely, very much so. So I did that. Uh, So that really got me into sort of helping other women on a voluntary uh, level. And then after a few years, I realized actually this is something I'm really, really interested in and I'd like to actually train as a counselor. So I took myself off to my local Guildford College in 93, I think. And I did a very basic sort of counseling skills course for a year part time. And then I realized actually I wanted to go a bit further on. So then I ended up doing a diploma and um, qualified in humanistic counselling. I think I qualified in 97. 
And um, then I was introduced to a friend of a friend of mine who was a clinical psychologist in Kingston upon Thames. And she was looking for someone to train health visitors alongside her, um, which I did. I did that for about three or four years up in Kingston. And out of that, I became a, a clinical supervisor for the health visitors. And out of that, we ran focus groups um, to find out what women in that area needed. And then I became a facilitator of support groups alongside health visitors. And I did that for, for a number of years and then the funding ran out and, and then I went down to East Surrey Primary Care Trust and did exactly the same with them. I trained the health visitors up and I ran support groups alongside their health visitors. Then, and then fast forward, um, I think it must have been 2003, I was counselling a girl, uh, one-to-one after the birth of her second child who was very unwell with PND. And when she recovered, she and her husband approached me and said they'd like to form a charity for me to support women in Surrey through groups. And of course, I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> you know, it was a sort of an amazing thing to be offered. So they funded the charity and funded my salary for a number of years. And then it just sort of grew. From then I had a girl in a group, um, that wanted, knew someone in London that wanted us to, to go up to London and set up a group in Ballam, which we did probably about nearly 10 years ago now. So, yeah, so we're just sort of a very, very small charity, but with, you know, a big, big heart. And um, we have managed to help many, many women. So, yeah. yeah. So that was my journey into coming out of PND and turning it around to, to help other women. And that's really basically what, I feel that I was meant to do. So. Yeah, I'm getting, I, I, I have tissues, <laughs> I've got <laughs> tissues nearby, because I knew that I'd probably find this quite, you know, powerful talking to you today. But yeah, I've, I've literally, we're, we're only a few minutes in and I'm feeling teary already. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you must have only just started the Ballam Group when I came along then I think so I was incredibly lucky I think you were in one of the first groups were you with a girl that was a ceramic designer and yes yeah yes so yeah and we had the teacups which was yeah. such a yeah. lovely which I still use oh brilliant yeah. one of my fellow alumni uh, of Cedar House was an incredibly talented lady she was a ceramicist and made teacups that could I think they had messages on, didn't they? Mm. Powerful messages from from our group to all the the groups to come, because one of the really important parts of attending every week was to have that cup of coffee or cup of tea and a couple of bickies, and to just yeah. you just felt it was such a safe space to totally talk about anything and feel you weren't judged and you were supported and uh, it was yeah I mean an absolute lifeline to any of us going through it yeah and yeah what an incredible privilege to have been with all those incredible women in in that group because I think it's something that we've we've talked about before that with all those incredible women and I keep saying incredible now so I'll have to edit this out <laughs> with all those with all those amazing women you would never know what was going on with them on no, the surface not anybody walked into that room you'd think we were just having a jolly nice chatty coffee morning you know yeah no one would know. and they were all so 
effusive and intelligent and high achieving. And I remember there was one mum with five children who would turn up so immaculate and just looking radiant and beautiful. And you'd never know that she was feeling so dead inside. Mm. You just don't know. Um, But I was very lucky and that's what I'm hoping that Blue Mum Days will be a way of sort of passing that safety and, and sense of security onto people who can't actually access your group on a, a physical basis. Face to face, yeah, absolutely. When you talk about privilege, I mean, that is what I have every every single day I work with women. I am so honoured and privileged to be able to share their journey with them. You know, I think that's, that to me has been the biggest part of, of helping women to see women coming from absolute rock bottom to full recovery and for those women to have been so open and honest and transparent with me enable for me to to be able to help them is there a sort of common factor between the women that you see a, a common propensity towards getting postnatal depression oh uh, gosh yeah I guess that they there could be, I suppose, but there are so many women that get it that don't necessarily have really big risk factors. So, you know, over the years, I've realised that the majority of women with postnatal depression is definitely a chemical imbalance. It's a chemical change. There are, I would say, sort of personality traits that possibly, you know, predispose women to women that are quite... Um, I wouldn't say, you know, want to be in control, but like control in their lives, quite well organised people, uh, possibly perfectionist traits, I think. And I think, you know, that's understandable when a baby comes into your life, it just, you know, throws it upside down. And so you can't necessarily stick to what you're used to in a routine and, um, you know, sort of being in control in inverted commas. It's interesting because a lot of girls have worked with children that have PND, like teachers, nurses, nannies, um, doctors. I've had a lot of doctors come through the group. And I think there is that sort of propensity of just sort of thinking, well, you know, I've handled a, a, a class of 30 children type of thing. One baby surely isn't going to be that difficult, but as we know, it really is. Uh, the other thing I would say that I would say probably around about 70 to 80 percent of the girls that I support have some past issue that hasn't been resolved right so that could be you know could range from sort of miscarriage to to sort of abuse yeah but quite often there's something lurking around and that's really understandable because you know as people we all have crises in our lives and things that happen to us and a lot of the time possibly we choose not to look at these things because they're either too painful or we're too busy doing other things to take that time to actually address these issues and we all know that they don't go away they just sort of lay dormant and then at some stage another crisis might happen like a nice crisis of having a baby and these issues can come back to bite you on the bum yeah it's like they sort of bubble up don't they yeah so I think you know, I think including myself, I look at uh, why I had postnatal depression after both my girls. I would say mainly it was a, a hormonal chemical imbalance. But then 
first time round, I had, you know, after, before I had Emma, two years before, I had a very rare pregnancy, which I think you know about, Vicky, that, that mm. turned out to, to, to cause cancer. Um, I had a molar pregnancy that turned into something called a choriocarcinoma. And I was only 24 and recently married. And, you know, I spent a lot of time having chemo on a ward with other people, young people, and some of them didn't make it. And actually looking back, it was a horrendous experience for me, really traumatic. And I don't think I ever really sort of, I didn't, I thought I dealt with it and I thought I got on with it, but I, obviously I didn't. And then second time round after Holly, of course, my father was dying of lung cancer. And, you know, he subsequently died when Holmes was six months old. So again, I was sort of going through my pregnancy and having to deal with, you know, seeing my father die, which, you know, again, is hugely traumatic. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, there are other other factors that predispose women and men to having it. Yeah. Can you talk about because I know when I joined your group, there were certain things. So you you've already covered you know, people who've had issues that are unresolved. Also, people at work with children or feel they've got, you know, a natural affinity to children. Suddenly it's the shock to the system when they actually have their own child. Are there any other sort of risk groups that you could identify? Yeah, so um, women that have had previous depression and anxiety are slightly more risk, obviously. Uh, women that have multiple births, Again, probably the increase in hormone, the, you know, relentless exhaustion you would have if you had more than one baby at a time. Women that have been abused sexually, emotionally, physically. Um, and for some reason, or not for some reason, it's a very obvious reason, women that go through fertility treatment, IVF. Um, and I think here the experts seem to think that because you know, it's a, a very traumatic thing to go through having IVF treatment. It's that sort of realisation you can't conceive naturally, which obviously must be very, very disappointing. And then you go through a real clinical process. You're pumped full of different hormones. Um, and maybe you have very high expectations of once that baby's born, how wonderful it's going to be. Not just your own expectations, but maybe your, your partner's expectations, your family, your friends. And I think that was, you know, a bit of after Emma, you know, what I've been through with the cancer and stuff. I think that was definitely for me, those high expectations. Oh, my God, this is just going to be the most amazing thing ever. Because look what I've gone through to get her type of thing. And of course, we all know that it's not always the most amazing thing ever. So, yeah, so that's a risk factor as well. Um, and an unsupported relationship, too. I think, you know, if you're on your own potentially you're more likely to have it as well or if you're not being supported by someone mm -hmm. yeah it's very interesting you talking about the chemical imbalance because I know there are different sort of arguments as to whether antidepressants are the right thing to help or, or not what what's your sort of experience and your thoughts on on that well, I'm sure as all the girls in the group would say, oh, Liz, she's always banging on about medication. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for me, I honestly don't believe I would be here without having taken antidepressants because I was very suicidal for the first nine or ten months of Emma's life. Um, and I really believe that it was the antidepressants that got me better both times. But, of course, I'm not 
ever, ever going to push anybody into taking medication if they don't want to. It has to be any individual's choice. But we do know, just like antibiotics are made to combat infection, antidepressants are made to combat depression. And that's why they work. They're not just some kind of, you know, happy pill that you take and then when you come off and you're depressed again. They actually really do readdress the balance, you know, the serotonin that's, uh, that's depleted in your brain. And I think for me, the other thing is I do see women that are very resistant to taking medication and they come to the groups or I'm working with them on a one-to-one basis and they don't want to take it. And I know deep in my heart that if they did, it would be an easier journey for them, probably a bit quicker and not as relentless as, as it can be when you don't take them. But of course, for me, it's really sad to see that these girls struggle and then sometimes after a few months they'll say sod it I've tried everything else I'm going to try these things and nine times out of ten they'll say I wish I'd taken them sooner. Mm. That must be very hard for you sort of keeping uh, at a distance. Of course it is yeah absolutely Um, but you know there's no way that I would impose my own opinion on that if they don't want to take them so so I'm getting lit by a Labrador here. <laughs> no, that's one of life's privileges, isn't it? It's <laughs> yes, absolutely. Do you know, I was I, I was going through a recording of one of the other episodes, and all you can hear relentlessly is my my uh, Siamese cat Brandy meowing in the background <laughs> on on a different floor, but his voice still carries. <laughs> um, so. Very speaking very personally, I was terrified to take antidepressants and I found your discussion about it within the group and your matter of factness. And again, that sort of talk about, you know, it's it's treating a chemical imbalance. So it's putting back something that you should have naturally gave me the confidence to try antidepressants and I remember my doctor actually saying to me you know don't make a big deal out of it just give it a try and see if it works and I remember sort of taking that very first tablet with a glass of water just thinking what's it going to do to me and Mm. I was terrified of it taking over I was terrified of it making me numb I was worried that it would give me artificial happiness yeah and so that I would think life was better and life was good, but it's because I'm just pumped full of chemicals. But in my experience, and I'm still nine years on, still on antidepressants. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes the edge off in, in terms of it makes you feel emotionally well. And so you still have the challenges of life, but you're able to cope with them a lot better. That's how yeah. I see it. And that I still have ups and downs. I'm not numbed in any way. And I think because I was lucky that the first tablet I tried was clearly a a good fit for me. But there's all sorts of different types of antidepressants, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's always going to be something that suits everybody. So I think I tried two or three before my psychiatrist sort of got the right one for me. So don't be sort of really despondent if the first one you take doesn't sort of work. I mean, it, it, it usually does. The majority of girls that 
take an antidepressant don't don't have to change it. you know it's usually okay for them and i think the thing is that doctors quite often don't have the time to explain how antidepressants work to people and i think that can be really put them off taking them because you need to know how they work and how long you're going to have to be on them for and how you can reduce them type of thing and i think to be able to offer women and men, of course, an informed choice in taking them, they need to know exactly that. And I know a lot of the girls come and say, well, my doctor hasn't explained to me how they work and how's it going to be when I come off them and how long I should be on them. So that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think GPs not having enough time is such a, a crucial thing. Mm-hmm. And I... I also felt so uh, we're going back like nine years ago when I was um, at my lowest and you really felt that GPs and definitely health visitors didn't have much understanding of, mm-hmm. of PND or where resources were available to go to for support. And I, I found that, you know, living in London in 2012, as it was really shocking and I, I, I thought if I'm struggling to find people in the know, then, and this is before I discovered Cedar House, God knows how people living in rural Wales or Scotland. Absolutely. Or... Yeah, and I think, and I still hear that. Well, my health is to a GP, don't, don't know anything about the group I hear girls say. And I think, well, you know, that's, but talking about rural areas, I think what we found during the pandemic is that, you know, the number of girls that we were able to support online from, I had a girl that lived in uh, Tanzania, I had a girl in Belgium. Yeah, from all over the country. And, you know, we were able to offer that support. And we're continuing to do that now too. We still offer a monthly online group for women that can't, you know, geographically reach the group for face-to-face. That, that's wonderful. So there could be people listening now who would who would like to reach out. How would they get in contact with you for possible online? So through our website, which is cedarhousesupportgroup.com. Um, you only, I think you have to put Liz Wise postnatal depression into Google and it'll come up with my contact details. So, you know, my email address and my phone number. And never hesitate to contact me because I know that's one of the hardest things to do to reach out initially to ask for help. But, you know, I am, I hope Vicky would agree with this. I'm quite an an approachable person. And, um, you know, I, my time is for four parents going through this awful illness. And so even if I'm busy at the time, leave me a message and I'll get back to you without a doubt. Please don't ever feel afraid to contact us. Absolutely. I remember how terrified I was sort of making that initial call, but I was also so relieved to have found somewhere where I could go because for the longest time, it felt like months I was saying to my GP and to health visitors, you know, I I want to be amongst other women that feel the same way as as me. Mm -hmm. And I I think one of the most profound things I found from the group was just the reassurance of you'd be saying something like um, I would have a panic attack in the middle of a shop and I would have a basket full of shopping and I'd run out I'd I'd put the basket down and run out the shop and I'd hear other mums saying oh me too that happens to me 
or there might be something else and you would say that's perfectly normal that is you know a classic thing connected with pnd and just having that normalized and that you you know you're not going mad that everything you're experiencing has been experienced by so many other women because it's mm-hmm. part of the illness yeah Yes, I think, you know, I think that's the whole thing about being with other women in the group is that normalising of your feelings and reducing that sense of isolation you have when you feel like that. Because you do, you feel that you're the only person that's going through it. And I remember talking to women when I was uh, really depressed and just waiting for them to say, you know, about their symptoms. And if they didn't mention one of the symptoms that I had, I thought, right, that's it. I'm never going to get better because I, I feel like this, but that woman's not saying that she'd felt like that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, just looking out for all the negatives to, to sort of, you know, say to myself, well, I'm going to be the one that won't recover. And, and on that subject, you know, it's no exaggeration. I've, I've supported thousands of women over nearly 30 years now, and um, I've never known anybody not get better. So, you know, it's... Even if, you know, you, you were saying yourself, Vicky, that, you know, you, you, your choice has been to remain on your medication. And that's absolutely your choice. Type of thing. The majority of women with postnatal depression do do come off their antidepressants. But yeah. there are people like yourself that, that feel that it's better to keep taking it. You know, you've probably got a low level of serotonin in your brain. Like, you know, if you had diabetes, you need to take your insulin. So, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. I think what you just said, just there is so important that you know we we want this to be an oasis of hope for people so for anybody going through it right now you will get better absolutely you will get better yeah most definitely but when you're actually in the thick of it you can't see that you just can't see any way out of it I remember you probably felt the same Vicky I felt I'd had a total personality change in fact, at some stage, I thought I was schizophrenic. And I thought, well, this is it for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have the same sort of confidence that I had before. I withdrew into my shell. You know, I've always been a sort of confident, outgoing sort of person. And I just withdrew. I didn't want to see my friends. I didn't want to see my family. And my thought processes were so different to how they were before I was depressed. You know, it terrified the life out of me that I'd never feel like the girl I did before. And that actually brings me back to the medication when you were talking. People are so worried when they take antidepressants that they're going to sort of not feel themselves. They're not going to feel like the old them. But actually, that's what they do. They get you back to the old you and they get you feeling like how you felt before. So that's really important to remember. They don't sort of give you a personality change in a negative way. They get you back to to the old person that you were. Yeah, yeah. And and that, I think, is such a a profound message to get across to people. I mean, obviously, as you say, taking any medication is a very individual choice. But I think it's important to reassure people that a lot of the fears that you have around it aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Absolutely. The biggest things that I learned from the group was this idea of hooks. Can you talk a bit about hooks? Yeah. So this illness has a very odd way of hooking anxiety onto different, very different odd things. So my hook after Emma was because 
I was so seriously depressed, how my psychiatrist explained it to me. I couldn't feel any sort of maternal love for her because of the heavy weight of my depression was just really pushing all my feelings down. But she explained to me once I started to get better, those feelings that the, the depression would start to lift and those feelings would come through for her. And my God, was she right? She was so right. You know, I didn't believe her at all, but when it happened, it happened. Of course, Ems is what... Well, she's 35 and due her first baby in a few weeks' time. Uh, and my love for her, as for Holly, of course, my second daughter, has never stopped growing. But at that time, I never thought that would happen. So my hook was that I should never have had this baby because I can't love her. And what happens if she gets to any age and I don't still love her? That was awful. I used to torture myself with that. And also, I used to test myself. Well, you know... What happens if she dies? Would I be upset? And in the thick of my depression, I didn't think I would be. And I know this sounds terrible, but I thought that if she wasn't with me, then I wouldn't feel as bad anymore. You know, I thought mm. if she was taken away from me, you know, gave her up for adoption or something had happened to her, I'd feel better. I mean, which is ludicrous, of course, absolutely. But that was that was my hook as well. And then after Holly. My hook was fear of cancer, my own awful phobia about illnesses. So if I had a headache, I thought I had a brain tumour. If I had a pain in my breast, I had breast cancer and, and ev everything. And it was really, really torturous for me, just awful. But then I supported other women whose hooks. I had a girl once who thought she called her baby the wrong name. So that oh was goodness. her hook. Yeah, so she thought if she changed her baby's name, she wouldn't de be depressed anymore. So that was her hook. I've had a mm -hmm. lady that thought her child was born in the wrong school term time. And if yeah. it had been born a month later, she wouldn't be depressed because her hook was, oh, my God, my child's always going to be the youngest in the class type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So these hooks can hook themselves onto the most oddest things and they don't always stay you can get rid of one hook and then something else will pop in and it'll hook itself onto that anxiety. And, you know, they're really scary, these sort of obsessional, irrational thoughts or hooks, as we call them. So, And they're very, they're very deep as well, because, you know, I, I remember them. And one of my major hooks were about feeding um, because Stanley was really little and the pressure I was put under to, to feed him. And I still, to this day, I can find myself, if I'm out of the house at about half past four, I get this sinking feeling that I've got to be at home. And this is like nine years on, and I'm not walking around with buggies or prams anymore. You know, I can be out at the shops or, or at work, and I just get this feeling like I need to be at home and that I can absolutely pinpoint to one occasion where I was walking through the park and feeling like, oh my God, I have forgotten that I need to be at home breastfeeding because that's when I was told I needed to right. be breastfeeding. And at that stage, I didn't feel comfortable enough to breastfeed in, in public. Mm -hmm. So I got this terror of like, I've got to be at home and I should not be at right. And so sometimes I could still get little ghosts of that feeling. But um, not so much the terror. You don't feel that awful terror? Um, sometimes I can feel, yeah, quite panicky. 
like it's it's like an anxiety ghost really back from that period right um but I'd I'd love to hear from you as as well about the hook on feeding and, and breastfeeding in particular because I know certainly when I attended two of your groups there seemed to be a lot of women who had had issues or anxieties around breastfeeding is that something mm-hmm. you've come across oh very much so I mean you know of course I'm very much in favor of breastfeeding but I'm also very much in favor of what is best for the mother mm-hmm. you know and the baby so I do think that there is some kind of relationship between breast for some women breastfeeding issues and postnatal depression I think it raises your anxiety a lot if, if you are having difficulties with it. And it certainly was something for me after Emma, definitely. So, you know, and some women have um, quite dark thoughts when they're breastfeeding as well. You know, that, again, is obviously linked to the hormonal changes and things. Um, and I do, I do hear still a lot that, you know, in hospitals there's... Um, a lot of pressure for women to, to breastfeed. And yeah. yeah, no, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm very, very in favor of, as I say, what's best for mum and, you know, baby will be okay. Yeah. So. I, I think that's such an important message because I think most of us know, you know, the importance of breastfeeding and, you know, in an ideal situation, a lot of babies would be breastfed but there are so many situations where the mum cannot breastfeed for one reason or another or has such terrible anxieties and troubles breastfeeding but there is this real sense of shame and and stigma still about not being a proper mum if you don't breastfeed your child which is absolutely which is just ridiculous isn't it yeah I I think it's really important that women you know are supported to breastfeed but there's a way to do that that doesn't impact negatively on your mental health and I really hope desperately that this is something that can be improved so that women don't feel under that terrible pressure I remember a few years ago I had a girl in my group that couldn't breastfeed and there was the room we were in had this poster up breast is best you know and she did say to me could you take that down please which obviously I didn't put it back up when we weren't doing the groups. You know, it was a clinical room. It didn't, yeah. wasn't a room that, you know, I put that poster up, not at all. But that type of thing can be really, really damaging. That, that messaging's everywhere. I remember, like, yeah. you know, you would go to children's centres and that would be on the, the toilet doors. Yeah. I, I went through a lot of pain with breastfeeding and I, I would look at that and just feel so utterly useless because you know, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do it properly? Sure. And, you know, why do I keep getting blocked ducts and yeah. stuff like that? And then funnily enough, I, I got mastitis and, and that side of feeding became my next hook, which was about terror of getting blocked ducts again. Yeah. I kept getting a lot of, and yeah, that became a real fear and the relief when I finally gave up breastfeeding. Yeah. And the pressure I felt lifted off my shoulders because of that constant fear of, am I putting enough goodness into 
myself mm-hmm. body am I doing it the right way am I doing am I switching breasts properly enough yeah. you know and 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 because there's so much to learn and there's so many different ways of doing it and yeah I don't think and any new mum really understands how complex Difficult breastfeeding exactly. yeah very much so yeah and also you know the physical and emotional demands of you when you're breastfeeding and it's you know for some women it's lovely and it is great but it is so physically demanding of you and emotionally because if you're exclusively breastfeeding no one else can do it for you and you know unless you're sort of expressing and giving your baby a bottle but I don't know And, and again I used to think well how much is she getting how do I know? You know, we don't yeah. have a sort of marker system down our boobs to see how yes. many ounces they're getting or whatever. So I don't know. Having um, uh, my daughter breastfed her daughter um, for for a number of weeks, and then she just solely went on to bottle. And you know, you can still. I mean, I, for me, that was wonderful because it meant that I could bottle feed my granddaughter. And, yeah. I, and people say, well, you don't get the same bond. Well, actually, I, I felt very bonded by being able to do that with her type of thing. Yeah. The time that I had on my own with her type of thing, feeding her, and she'd be able to look at my into my eyes and me into hers. And you're going again, Vicky. I know. You? <laughs> you can see. It's like Stan, um, Stanley calls it my duck, my duck bill face when I start getting teary. <laughs> he tells me off because every single parents evening there's a point where I start (laughs) (laughs) but you're you're so right and I I remember you know I loved breastfeeding when it didn't hurt it was just the most wonderful lovely thing the problem I had was that it hurt quite quite a bit and I was terrified of losing a bond with Stanley when I gave up breastfeeding I was really worried that our cuddles wouldn't be as loving and intimate and that's bollocks because it was still just as lovely and you know I'm still thrilled that age nine he still comes for cuddles every day so for any mums really berating themselves about the thoughts of giving up it's it's okay of course it is whatever you do is okay yeah even if you you could only get some colostrum which is the very early uh Mm -hmm. milk to your baby that is still goodness you know you've still done an incredible job exactly yeah take some pressure off yourselves definitely yeah yeah so liz the other thing that I found really profound about your group was the fact that you also took it upon yourself to meet the partners of mm-hmm. the mums because you you wanted to sort of increase understanding for them. So mm-hmm. for any partners, dads or even friends and family who are concerned about a woman going through this, what would your advice be? Well, I think initially try and um, encourage the mum to to go to the GP to to say how they're feeling because it's it's really important after having a baby whether you've got postnatal depression or not that the GP knows how you are you know physically and emotionally it's really important you know GPs they're all aware that you know 
postnatal depression is a recognised and totally treatable and curable illness that they're there to support the parents going through it. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I would do is to to reassure the mum that this isn't going to last forever. You know, this is this is quite actually very common. And your feelings that you're having are very normal when you have postnatal depression and anxiety, but it will go away. And listen, I think that's the most important thing, because as much as our men are fantastic, they're far usually more solution focused than we are. So if we've got a problem, 99% of the time, they like to fix it for us, which is great if it's a practical thing. But with something like emotional issues and PND, they can't just be fixed overnight type of thing. So try not to say, why don't you do this? You'll feel better if you go for a walk. If you do this, you might feel better type of thing, which, you know, can be very encouraging. But if the mum's saying she's not motivated to do things, the main thing to do is to listen to her. You know, and I mean actively listen. Listen to what she's saying. Listen to what, you know, she feels might help her. I'd like to go and have a bath. Would you look after the baby for half an hour? Um, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that type of thing. So you know, gently suggest, but if the mum's saying, no, 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 that's not going to help, then throw the ball into her court, really, and say, okay, we've looked at various options which you think aren't going to be helpful. What do you think could be helpful for me to be able to support you with this? I think that's great advice there, and especially just to reassure partners and and friends and family, you don't need to have answers, that actually it's just being there you know for them to feel that you can say anything that you can be honest about your darkest feelings and still be loved I think yes and for not you know not to be feeling that someone's shocked by what you might say I wish I hadn't had my baby or I don't feel that I really connect with my baby or really love him or her you know that's that's quite a big thing for any person to admit so Try not to show your shock if you feel it uh, and try not to pass judgment or your own opinion because that is scary for someone to say anyway. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be even worse if someone says, oh, God, that's terrible. You know, can't believe you've said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the hardest things sort of early on was, um, and my, my husband, you know, feels very ashamed for having ever said this, but. I remember him saying the classic words, man up. And, you know, you've got everything to, to live for. You've got a beautiful boy or we've got a beautiful boy. And it's like, I knew that, but I couldn't. I was in the depths of yeah. the illness. For people that can't understand what depression feels like, is there anything you could say to sort of help them to understand? I think it's really difficult unless you've had this illness to really sort of be able to sort of, totally empathise. It's like any experience in life, really, isn't it? But I think to be able to say, because I know friends and family want that person to be better and be better quickly, because it's not nice looking at someone or living with someone who's depressed and anxious, of course not. But I think, you know, it's difficult. I mean, my husband has never been depressed at all. And this is my you know, my my current husband, my second husband. So he has no 
no idea about how it feels. But because of the work that I do, he gets quite a good understanding of what it's like and what the symptoms are and everything. Um, so just going back to your initial question, Vicky, about what would I say? I think I think I say be patient. You know, you, you're going to want this person to get better very quickly, but there isn't a quick fix for PND. We all know it takes takes a matter of months to recover from it. Um, yeah. So be patient. And things like, you know, we get irritable, don't we, with our partners? When I mean, in general, but even worse, when you're feeling depressed and anxious. And it's not about them. It's about how you're feeling and how angry you're feeling about being so unwell and et cetera, how frustrating it is that you're not getting better as quickly as you'd like to. So, yeah, I think gentle patience, kindness. Definitely. Yeah. How about you? Um. Yeah, just listening is so important. You know, now my husband totally understands and he was so fantastic when he actually found out more about the illness and mm. realised that it wasn't something I could just snap out of. Or I think he he had the biggest fear that because my mum had postnatal depression, uh, I think he was worried that my mum and I had sort of cooked this up that we'd somehow auto-suggested <laughs> but but you know I, I, I've just persuaded myself that I've got postnatal depression <laughs> which you don't you don't wish on yourself no. at all no. and <laughs> um, I think that's a really important point to point out now that you know you cannot bring this illness on yourself just as much as you can't pull yourself together and snap out of it god if you could you would because no one wants to feel as bad as you do when you have it yeah, yeah. I think literally, if I could put that on a big banner, <laughs> that that's so such an important thing to say, Liz. I think I'd like to just go back for a moment to to what you were saying about you know how much courage it takes to admit to sort of dark feelings. And I know myself that there were opportunities when I was pregnant that I could have said that I was worried about developing postnatal depression because I had very low self-esteem and I had anorexia for 10 years and so I had sort of propensity towards emotional issues but I was too frightened to because then mm -hmm. if you said that out loud I was really terrified that I was wishing it you know then I'd cause it to happen right and one of the things that I again actually my husband um, found an article a few months ago where it was talking about GPs now had this this sort of checkup where they actually ask about your emotional health after you've had a baby and that was felt to be a way of answering that that need in in mums but because mums can often feel so intimidated and ashamed mm. of admitting to those things and often it was a, a call that was so rushed because GPs were so busy. It wasn't actually helping because women weren't actually coming clean about how they were really thinking. Is that something that you can sort of relate to? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, I, I think now further on, we're a bit, you know, it is spoken about uh, antenatally. And I know Emma said to me recently she, at her NCT class, PND was brought up as one of the subjects in the evening. And I thought, great, you know, we do need to know, we need to talk about it just as much as we need to talk about labor and delivery. We need to talk about how the mother's mental health or father's may be after. 
birth. And, you know, we know antenatal depression affects about 10% of mums. So it's really important that we, we talk about it prior to the baby arriving because yeah. it's, it's so normal. You know, we talk about everything else physically. So let's talk about it, you know, talk about our emotional well-being during and after our pregnancy. I was chatting to Jake of the Hub of Hope, who runs this incredible charity called Chasing the Stigma. And I love his approach that he talks about it's never mental illness, it's mental health. And we all have health, good and bad. If you switch to that way of thinking, then it becomes a much more normal thing. It's about physical recovery and mental recovery from giving birth. It affects the body and, and the mind in so many profound ways. And they're entwined, aren't they? They're yeah. not separate. I mean, they are physically, but, you know, we are, they're joined, you know, what affects us physically affects us emotionally and vice versa. So. What would you like to see in terms of early intervention? Is there something with perinatal care that could help? I think it's really important for midwives and GPs to, to be able to ask the mother if they've got any mental health issues, if they've had them previously or they're concerned about the mental health at the time. Yeah, absolutely. To, to, to be able to put that support in before, you know, it gets too late, most definitely. And I, in fact, I see that a lot. A lot of the girls, um, particularly when that have had previous depression, anxiety or pre previous PND, will get support from the perinatal mental health team sometimes in the antenatal period. So, yeah. So it's a postcode lottery, I think. Yeah. It really is a postcode lottery. There are some girls that won't be offered it at all and some girls that get a lot of support, so, depending on where they are. For partners and family and friends, what do you think are helpful messages for mums going through this to hear because I mean I for one was always feeling like a failure as a mum and to have somebody say to me actually good enough is brilliant and that you don't have to be the perfect mum you're, you're doing a good job that really helped me lift me that you know I wasn't constantly failing my son. No absolutely I think that's so important because there isn't the perfect parent well, there isn't the perfect ending, is there? So, and because you don't have anybody at home watching you and saying, Do you know, Vicky, you've done an incredible job today with Stanley. Look at everything you've done in the house. Look at what you've done. You've fed him. You've kept him alive. And that, to me, I think is one of the biggest things that mum do, mums do. You get to the end of the day and you've kept your baby safe. Yeah. Anything else is a Brucey bonus isn't it yeah. you know you don't need to be you know reading to it at two weeks old or stimulating it with toys here there and everywhere you know your baby will be happy with you you know just changing it feeding it because I I know mums say to me oh, I don't think I talk to my baby enough and I don't think you realize when you're doing a nappy change or when you're washing the bottles or breastfeeding or something you probably are doing little chitty chatty things without even consciously aware of it don't compare yourself to other mothers don't look at social media about how everybody looks after two weeks getting back into their size eight jeans and 
made up and you know having such a wonderful time because a lot of it's baloney <laughs> yeah I know ab- absolutely my god you know and considering if you have got postnatal depression you know you're doing an incredible job with the circumstances that you're going through and I, you know I always I make sure I say to my daughter and I will do to Emma what an incredible job they're doing with their baby because it's so important you don't get that like you do in the workforce, do you? When you, oh, you've done a fantastic piece today, or look at that project you've worked on, amazing. We don't get feedback like that. And it's really yeah. important that we do as mothers because it is one of the hardest jobs in the world yeah. to look after and bring up children. It's demanding, it can be very boring. And don't feel guilty about saying, well, actually, I don't like playing all the time. Who does, you know? It's okay. And yeah, it's a bit like being a tour manager for a band where you're, if things go right, nobody says anything. But if things go wrong, there's a lot of finger pointing and judgment. Um, Absolutely. So please, please cut yourself some slack because just by being there and and getting through the day and I I would really say that to anybody listening, going through PND at the moment, that actually just surviving shows how strong you are Mm. you're not weak for having pnd in any way Oh, absolutely not and i think a lot of girls would say when they come out the other side actually i wouldn't be without that experience it's taught me so much it's made me much stronger you know definitely i would say that without a doubt and i've heard a lot of girls say that if you can get through pnd you can get through anything yeah, it's a it's a badge of honour. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Thank you well, it's so been much. Lovely to have this time with you. And uh, just to say to anybody listening, please, if you need to contact me, want to contact me in total confidence, don't hesitate to. Yeah, and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend Liz. Thank you so much for all you do and all you are. Thank you, Vicky. That's no lovely. Worries. Get me going in a minute. Oh no, <laughs> I can't. No, no, no. You keep your zen, <laughs> zen-like composure. <laughs> if you enjoy this episode of Blue Mondays, please rate and subscribe. It only takes a minute, but it genuinely makes a difference to how many people can find it, which means helping more parents in need. Thank you.